Well, good morning. We're so glad you've joined us for worship today. I want to begin this morning by showing you a picture. A friend of mine sent it, and this is actually her son at the top of the wave. Notice it's a, big, it's a surfer on a huge wave, and uh, it's a pretty frightening picture, actually. But when I looked at this picture, I, I thought about the whole coronavirus pandemic that we're in. I think some of us feel like the guy up on the wave. You know, we feel like our lives have been turned upside down. We're just trying to ride the wave the best we can, hoping this all goes away soon. Others, I think, are like this guy down here. You know, we're, we're doing okay. The water seems pretty calm, feels good. I like the slowdown. You know, come on in. The water's fine. But if you notice, it's probably not going to last. And I think a lot of us have a certain amount of anxiety. Even if things are going relatively well, we have a certain amount of anxiety that the next big wave is still coming. But certainly one thing that's changed for all of us during this time of the coronavirus as Christians is how we live out our Christian life. So much of our faith is getting together. We come to church and meet in a large group. We meet in small community groups. We fellowship in all kinds of ways, and that's all changed. And though we can still meet online, it's really, really different. There's no building There's no face-to-face gatherings, no programs to speak of. So as I think about that, I think this is a wonderful opportunity from the Lord to reevaluate how we view and how we live out the Christian life. What does the Christian life really consist of for us? It's a good question to ask. How much of what I consider vital in my Christian life and in living out my faith, is really not biblical. It's not really from God. It's maybe man-made additions. And how much of it is really authentic Christianity? I want to read a quote from Brett McCracken, and he wrote this just a couple days before Easter, but you'll get the drift. There will be no Insta-friendly photo booths, polished musical programs, or pastel-colored bounce houses at churches this Easter. Cadbury egg giveaways and he is risen, latte art will be absent. Lavish children's ministry playgrounds, fair trade pour-over coffee, none of it will be there to entice seekers or twice-annual churchgoers. Months of planning for the most creative, attractive Easter service in town have been thwarted. Pastors everywhere are likely to be depressed at this turn of events, but they shouldn't be. Why? Because coronavirus has rapidly taken away the excesses of the church, all the bells and whistles, all the nice-to-haves that we've come to see as must-haves. What remains are bare essentials. Jesus, the Word, community, prayer, singing. 
What remains is the reality that the church can never be vanquished. We are Christ's body and will live eternally with him. Things are suddenly spartan in how we do church, but what we are remains as vibrant as ever. I think that's a great word. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25 and following, Jeroboam has taken over the northern kingdom of Israel. But to control the people and maintain power, he creates an alternative man-made religion. And as we look at what he does, we'll see some ways, perhaps, that we have maybe tarnished authentic Christianity with some of our own elements of man-made religion, self-made religion. Let's pray together and we'll look at this text together. Lord, thank you for how your word rings so true to life today. Thank you that you want to use this passage to penetrate our hearts and open our minds to ways in which we might not be living out quite the faith that you want us to. Use this passage, use the coronavirus to purify our faith that we might live out true, authentic Christianity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just to set context, set the background of chapter 12, I'd like to show you a map. And in our last section, the earlier part of chapter 12, we saw how Jeroboam split off from Rehoboam. And so the northern kingdom, the green here, is Jeroboam's northern kingdom called Israel. The southern kingdom is Judah, and Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigns over that section. Now, Jeroboam creates two places of worship, one way up in the north in Dan and one way in the south in Bethel. We'll explain more of that later, but he creates his own worship, his own religion, essentially, that is a takeoff of true Judaism, of the true worship of Yahweh that we see in the Old Testament. And I think if you walked into the northern kingdom in those days and you went to a worship site, you would say, wow, this seems a lot like what they do in Jerusalem. It seems a lot like Judaism. And I think it would have felt that way. They had a temple. They had priests. They had sacrifices. They had feasts. But it wouldn't be the same in reality because deep down it was man-made or self-made religion designed and controlled and led by man rather than designed and controlled and led by God. Jeroboam had truly created an alternative religion. So as we go in the passage, I want to highlight four characteristics of what self-made religion looks like, what man-made religion looks like. The first one I want to highlight that we see in Jeroboam is that self-made religion originates with us. It begins with us. It starts with us rather than with God. I want you to notice verse 26 again. And Jeroboam said in his heart, 
Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David, and he goes on and plans this new religion because of what he said in his heart. Down in verse 33, he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the eighth month in the month that he had devised from his own heart, that he'd planned from his own heart. You see, Jeroboam thought up this religion. It came from him. He made it up according to his own ideas, his own biases, his own thoughts about what a relationship with God ought to look like to fit what he wanted. He was shaping his faith based on what he thinks, not what on God says and thinks. And actually, if you look at any religion throughout history other than authentic Christianity, every religion is man trying to reach God, man coming with with an idea, man devising something to try to find a way to get what he wants out of life, whether it's a relationship with God or life to go well or whatever it might be. Only true Christianity, authentic Christianity, is God speaking to us, God reaching down to us, God making the effort to show us how to live in a proper way in relationship to him. So Jeroboam creates his own religion. It's much like the Pharisees in Jesus' day, while they were basing their faith on the Old Testament in many ways, they added all kinds of man-made rules to make it fit how they wanted to live or how they thought they should live. But they missed the whole intent of God. Just one example of that. For, for example, the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy is one of the Ten Commandments. One commandment. A few places in the Old Testament give a little bit of input to that commandment, but the Pharisees, wanting to make sure they never would violate it, came up with over 600 specific rules to make sure that they never violated it. But what that did is it changed the Sabbath from a day of delight and rest and worship and thanking God and praising him for his provision to making sure that you didn't do something wrong to violate the Sabbath. And that was never God's intention. They had good intentions, I think. But because it originated from them, it got away from God's plan You see, our our thinking, most of us, the way we think about God, the way we imagine him to be, I think often originates more from us than from God himself. Let me just give you a, a, a common example that I hear fairly often, and I do hear this fairly often, a common complaint. When I read the Old Testament, I I just can't understand it because God tells, for example, the Israelites, to kill all the Canaanites. I just can't believe in a God like that. I can't trust in an Old Testament God who would call for genocide. And I hear that complaint fairly often. Jesus is way too loving for that. He would never accommodate that. Now, I know this is a hard concept of what God says to do with the Canaanites, And it requires us wrestling deeply 
with the holiness of God as well as with the love of God. But to write off the Old Testament and write off the God of the Old Testament simply because it makes us uncomfortable and steps on our toes is really making our religion something that originates with us rather than with God. It's actually quite arrogant and foolish. And it means you are devising your faith the way you want it. You want God to be a certain way rather than letting God be God and letting him shape your view of who he is and of life and the Christian life, no matter how much it actually steps on your toes. You see, I think such an attitude reflects more humanism than biblical thinking. I do think there are good biblical reasons for how God acts, but it takes deeply wrestling with who he is when we don't understand and when, it does, when it's hard for us. Another example of how our faith sometimes originates with us is a common teaching out there. We've talked about it before, but the prosperity gospel. The gospel that says if you just have enough faith, God guarantees you to be healthy and wealthy and to not have to suffer if you just have enough faith. Essentially, it's a theology that says you can have heaven now. It sounds good. We wish it were true, but it's man-made. It's not what the scriptures teach. It's not God-designed. And see, when we pick and choose what we want to embrace, we are like Jeroboam, devising our own form of religion and moving away from the actual God of the Bible. Because authentic Christianity is God seeking us, looking at what God says first, submitting to what he says so that we can live out true, authentic Christianity. So man-made religion, self-made religion begins with us. It originates with us. The second characteristic I want to highlight for us this morning is that self-made religion is motivated by fear. Motivated by fear. Verse 27. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Jeroboam lets us in on what he's thinking and what he's feeling. He's terrified. He's terrified that he will lose power. And ultimately, he's terrified that they'll kill him. So out of fear and trying to deal with that fear himself, he creates a whole new religion. That's pretty common, I think. Self-made religion grows out of our fear, our fear of losing control, our fear of being insecure, our fear of not getting the life we think we need, our fear of what God might choose to put me through, the suffering he might bring into my life if I really, really trust him. You see, trusting in a God who has complete control and may choose suffering for us, in fact, he promises he will choose suffering for us, is terrifying for us. 
unless, unless you truly know God as absolutely loving, unless you truly know him as a God who does everything motivated at the deepest level by his love and concern for us, even hard things. And we tend to live in this world with an illusion of control that we can handle life and we are in control of what happens. But the reality, brothers and sisters, is we are not. Ultimately, God's in control and he can do whatever he wants any moment. And this pandemic we're in is just an example of that. Just a little virus can change the whole world. God could do that anytime, anytime. He's turned life upside down through it, and he's forced us to face the fact that despite how we like to think, we are not really in control. And that's a good thing, (laughs) to learn we're not in control, so that we can learn to submit to the God of the universe who has shown how much he loves us by coming, entering our suffering, and dying on the cross for us, taking on our guilt, our shame, our punishment, so that we could be set free and have a relationship with him and know he walks with us through suffering. So will we try to create our own religion that puts us back in control out of fear because we're afraid to trust this kind of God? Or will we submit to and trust in a God of love, compassion, grace, and holiness, which are all demonstrated in the cross. You see, authentic Christianity isn't governed by and motivated by fear. It's governed and motivated by gratitude, a thankful heart that says, Lord, thank you for loving me so much. Thank you for dying for me. You have bought me with a price. I am yours. That's authentic Christianity. The third characteristic I want to highlight of self-made religion is that it indulges our own desires. It indulges our own desires. Verse 28 says, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. And I want to stop there. That phrase in my translation says, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. I think a better translation, and some of the other translations say it this way, it's too much for you people to have to go all the way to Jerusalem to worship. I will make two other places, and we saw them on the map, way up in the north, Dan, and then in the south, Bethel, so they can stay in the nation of Israel and not have to go down to Jerusalem to the temple to worship. It sounds good, hey, I'm going to make God closer. I'm going to make it easier for you to worship God. But it actually totally undermines what God had asked the people of Israel to do in worship of him. They were to go to the temple three times a year for the major feasts and worship him there. And that would have been an incredible opportunity, I think, if the northern kingdom continued to worship to bring healing and life if they would travel to Jerusalem and to bring peace. But Jeroboam instead indulges their desires. Oh, let me make it easy and convenient 
for you. He appeals essentially to their, what we might call felt needs. (laughs) Their needs for comfort, for ease, maybe entertainment, for wanting life to go well. It's an attitude of, you don't really have to suffer. Let me make it easy for you. Years ago, J.I. Packer, the great theologian, wrote a book called Hot Tub Religion. Hot Tub Religion. I think that's a great title. And his point throughout the book is that many of us want to create a religion in which we are soothed by it. Life's kind of hard. So let my religion be something that soothes my aching soul, that the jets and the warm water makes me feel good. I just want church to make me feel a little better in a world that's full of pain and difficulty. But when we have that attitude, we are just like Jeroboam. And ultimately, it shapes a view of God that says, God, you are there to make my life go well. (laughs) I'll go to church in a building or online. I'll read the Bible. I'll do my part. Now you do yours, God. This is a transaction. This is a deal. If I do my part, you're obligated to make my life go easier, to make it more comfortable. And that is something we all fall into. I've fallen into it, but it's something that is a wrong view of God and a wrong view of Christianity. You see, either God is there to serve my needs or, which is self-made religion, (laughs) or I am here to serve him. I'm bought with a price. And again, I think all of us have elements of these at times, but authentic Christianity reflects what Jesus said as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Yes, I want life to go well, but, but Lord, I'm willing to trust you and cling to you and do your will, even if it means difficulty and suffering, even if it means doing the harder thing and stepping out to love those that are difficult to love in my family and beyond. So, self-made religion involves a number of things, but it also, finally, a characteristic of it is that it keeps us in control. And this is the bottom line for us, I think. Self-made religion keeps us in control. Again, verse 28, it says, The king took counsel and made two calves of gold. I want to show you a golden calf. I mean, you look at that and you go, why would they choose to worship a golden calf? It doesn't seem to fit with, with anything remotely close to our experience, does it? But I've wrestled with this and I've thought about this. You know, how do you worship an invisible God? Well, number one, you make him visible. You find a way to bring him down to our level, to take him down a few notches so that he's not quite as scary and it provides a certain amount of control 
for us. But, but why worship a calf? Why worship a young bull? Again, it's foreign to us. It's hard to connect. But the more I thought about it, the more that actually I think the golden calf encapsulates all our own idols that we tend to worship today. The things that we bow down to, the things that take our hearts away from more pure worship of God. Our golden calf just maybe looks a little different today. (laughs) Now think about a golden calf. What strikes you? Well, first of all, it's golden, right? (laughs) It's made out of gold. It's It reflects wealth and money. You see, money is something that Jesus said, for example, you cannot serve both God and money in Matthew chapter 6. Why did he say that? It's because it's a tendency for every one of us to want to worship money instead of God. We can easily fall into that because money is tangible. It's something that we think provides security. It cements our future. It allows us to get the things that make our life go well and on and on. But Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. But we do tend to worship money. We look to it for security, for life, for caring for us. And it's hard for us to separate those two. So the golden calf, I think as an Israelite, would, would have looked at the golden calf the idea of gold, the idea of money would have been something that drew his heart to worship. A second quality, I think, of a golden calf is power. Power. Now, the word here for calf is in the male. It's, it's masculine in form. So it's a male. It's a bull. And the bulls were considered strong and powerful, able to do lots of things a person can't. We tend to worship the things that make us feel powerful in life. I'm struck by how we love our trucks. We love our fast cars. Maybe a good mountain bike that allows us to fly down the hill. (laughs) Our fast boats. Anything that makes us feel powerful. And I think an Israelite, as they looked at the golden calf, there was a picture for them of power. And they worshipped that power. I think also an Israelite, as they looked at the golden calf, it gave them a sense of control. Another quality of a golden calf is control. Again, a bull is powerful. It's strong. But it's domesticated. (laughs) We as people can throw a harness on it and make it do what we want. We get to be in control. And I think often as people, we want a God who's powerful, but one that we can control. (laughs) One that we can throw a harness on and move him the way we want him to and get him to take care of us the way we want him to and fix the world the way we want him to. One that we can manipulate to give us what we want. Consider how we pray a lot of times. I think a lot of our prayers have to do with trying to get God, the powerful God, to do what we want. We want to control him. Lord, fix this. Make this part of my life better. Fix this person. Change this. 
change this person. So much of that, I think, is about control. We worship control. We want to stay in control. A fourth characteristic or a quality of a golden calf that strikes me that relates to us as an Israelite would look at this golden calf is success. We love success. You know, a bull for an Israelite was seen as very fruitful. A bull produces a lot of calves over time. We want our lives to be fruitful. So we shape our God to be one that will make our lives fruitful and successful. I was reminded as I thought about this of King Saul in 1 Samuel, the story of 1 Samuel. And King Saul is being surrounded by the Philistine armies and he's getting scared. Samuel had told him, wait for me to do the sacrifice but he's getting more and more terrified and he thinks, if I don't act now, if I don't do something, I will not have success against the Philistines. So he steps in and does the sacrifices himself and Samuel shows up and removes him from the kingship. Saul was so concerned about success that he disobeyed what God had clearly told him. I think sometimes we worship success. We're so concerned about it that we try to get God, we try to control him to get him to make our lives successful. And I think for an Israelite, they would look at the golden calf and they would say, aha, I worship success, in their hearts at least. The next one, the fifth one, quality is technology. Now, that may seem a strange one as we're thinking about a calf, right? A golden calf. But think with me a minute about an Israelite in almost 1,000 B.C. The bull was the, the highest technology of the day. If you had a bull, and not everybody had one, you could plow a field, you could pull a wagon, you could do all kinds of things that you weren't able to do if you did not have a bull. It really, truly was part of the latest technology for an Israelite to be successful in his agricultural world because it was an agricultural world. But like all technology it gives us a certain amount of control, but then it tends to control us. Think about smartphones today. Technology is awesome. We can do all kinds of things, and it's wonderful that we can meet online, what the Internet can do. But think about how smartphones and our access to the Internet gave us so much more control and so much we can do. And yet... More and more of us, they've begun to control us. And more and more people are getting addicted to their smartphones. Every time there's a a ding, there's an email, there's a text, they get this shot of dopamine, an addictive shot, and they have to answer that. They have to go to it. They have to check their phones many, many times a day. It's become addictive. It's begun to control us. And we can say that about pretty much any technology. For Israel, I think that was true as well. 
And then finally, I think maybe what the golden calf represents is a worship of an idol of nature or science. Why is that? How is that? Well, you know what? We want to believe in what we can see, don't we? It's really hard for us to believe in the invisible, even though so much of life and the good things of life are invisible, love and relationship and all those things. We want to believe in what we can see and we want to be able to have things that we can manipulate. What is unseen and invisible is just as real, but it feels out of our control. So many of us, I think, exalt nature because and science because they're things that are tangible to us. And so a, a calf became something that was very tangible to an Israelite. I can see it. I can touch it. I can bow down to it. But an invisible God is harder, harder to control. It's not as tangible, and that's more difficult for us. And I, I, think, I think we often have that same attitude as the Israelites. Uh, these are just some things I've thought of as I've thought about a golden calf and how it embodies so many of the idols of, of the heart for every one of us. And all of them serve to keep us in control. See, self-made religion is all about us being in control, about us making life work so we don't have to trust in a God that is all-powerful and is out of our control. Ultimately, self-made religion is made by me. (laughs) So I get to be God. I get to be in control. Well, Jeroboam created his own religion. And on the surface, it looked really good. It looked like Yahweh religion. It it looked right. But in these nine verses, a Hebrew word, the word made, sometimes translated different ways, appointed, created, whatever. but, But it's the same word. The word made occurs 10 times in these nine verses. Jeroboam made a temple. Jeroboam made a feast. Jeroboam made all these things. You see, it was the religion that was made by him. And it eventually led the people further and further away from the true God to the end where at the end he's doing his own sacrifices instead of the priests doing it. He's doing it himself because it's all about him. Now he's atoning for his own sin himself. What does authentic Christianity really look like? Well, again, back to Brett McCracken. He says this, in a tweet earlier this month, Duke Kwan pondered, what if God in his strange providence through the coronavirus is downshifting the American church into a mode of simplicity? Stripped of non-essentials, renewed in its fundamental identity as the people of God. Among other things, this downshifting will rid many people, including many pastors, (laughs) of the notion that church must be comfortable and consumer-friendly in the crowded marketplace of entertainment options. In the COVID-19 quarantine, the clunky, unpolished, 
computer church experience will decidedly not be the easiest or most comfortable option for how people spend their Sundays. Thank you for being here, by the way. (laughs) It will be a counter-cultural choice, and that's a good thing. You see, this crisis is a great opportunity for believers to think afresh about what it means to be distinctly Christian every day of the week, in every aspect of life. What does it look like to be noticeably Christian in a world where the previously most conspicuous thing about faith identity, going to church, is gone? I like what he says there, challenging us that, you know, it's good that we're, we've had so much stripped away so that what's left can be true Christianity. Authentic Christianity is not what we can control to make our lives go well. No, authentic Christianity is learning to die to yourself and submit to a God who has proven his love to us over and over. But one we often don't understand and we certainly can't control. It brings to mind that wonderful passage in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, where Lucy is talking to Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver's describing Aslan, the Jesus character, who is scary and powerful. And Lucy asks, well, is he safe? Mr. Beaver says, safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. You see, that's our Lord. That's our God. He's not safe in the way that we can control him, that we can make a calf and worship him, that we can make idols and think somehow that's worshiping God. But he is powerful and holy and loving, and he has proven his love to us, so he's utterly, completely trustworthy. He's proven his love to us through the cross. See, when Jesus went to the cross and died for us. God himself suffering in our place so that he entered our suffering world. It proved forever that he loves us and is with us in our suffering. For the moment, he's choosing not to take it away. We do have the hope and promise that one day he'll return and we will experience all the joys and the freedom of heaven. And that will be awesome. But in the meantime, he walks with us in suffering, empowers us, and loves us, and controls what happens for our very good. For God causes everything to work together for our good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. So we are going to take communion now together. I hope you have the elements with you. Find something that you can use in hand and I will pray and then we'll take communion together. Lord, thank you for this wonderful passage that reminds us of the idols that tend to take over our hearts. Lord, sometimes we're not very good at trusting you because it is scary. You are all powerful, but you are also all loving. And so may we grow in our trust of you. And even in this coronavirus, this pandemic, 
I pray we would rest in you, we would trust in you, and discover more and more what true, authentic faith looks like. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.